Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, as this struck the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in His consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, seek wisdom. Pray for us. Saint Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. Saint Agatha. Pray for us. Our guardian angels. Pray for us. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, thank you very much for coming out this evening. It's uh, great to be back for uh, the second week here on spiritual warfare. Last week's uh, lecture was titled "Our Culture of Death: Its Roots, Its Fruits, and Its Antidote." Uh, this week, our title is "Spiritual Warfare: Fighting for the Interior Life." Last week. Our attention on a very poignant reality that we live in a culture that would have us forget everything that's most important. I dare go further and say we are in a culture that is designed to cause us to forget who God is, who we are. So in this great war that we as Christians find ourselves in, this culture of death is as it were a, a hidden enemy. Our great enemy is hidden within this culture that would have us forget. We noted last time that it certainly serves our enemy's purposes to not come out and not be blatant in his own presence or in their own presence, for they are many. Indeed, they are legion. So they are hidden, but we might say all the more active through a culture that in very subtle ways is trying to prevent us from what we're fundamentally called to do, put on the mind of Christ. So the war, we need to be very clear, is over us. The whole issue, the only thing that can go one way or the other, it's very salutary for us to think about this, the only thing that can change is your heart and my heart. Nothing else changes. God's heart never changes. The demon's hearts never change. There's only one thing that changes. It could go this way or it could go that way. Otherwise, there'd be no war. There's no war unless there's something that can go one way or the other. So we have to be very clear that it is simply about us and where our hearts go. Will we put on Christ? 
will we put on the minds of Christ? Will we remember who we are? Just another word on using this phrase, the mind of Christ. But what what is the mind of Christ? Obviously, there's different ways that we could express that. But how if we choose this one? I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So the mind of Christ is that we always will what the Father wills in his love for us. So will we put on the mind of Christ? Will our hearts be transformed so that we always will what the Father wills as opposed to what we will? The culture of death in so many different ways simply says, do what you want. It's, it, it, it's, it's like being in warm water this culture of death. It just kind of feels good. It doesn't feel like someone's attacking you. It's just, it's just that comfortable, warm bath water. Do what you want. Relax. There's nothing big at stake here. Just relax and do your thing. And as we talked about last time, if we do our thing, we lose everything. True life requires a deep cultivation and constant vigilance. And that's what this warfare is about. So what's before us this year here? Well, we're, as it were, we're fighting for the interior life. We're fighting for our lives. We're going to have to have a battle plan if we're going to cultivate this life that we're made for, this life which is putting on the mind of Christ, do we have a battle plan? The good news is there is a battle plan. There's a Christian battle plan that, thank God, has been lived out by saints of the church down through the ages. It's been shown. It works. There's a battle plan that works. But are we going to do it? And thus will we join, as it were, the winning side? So I'm, I'm going if, if, if to, you, if you came in and you didn't get a, a handout, are there still are there more handouts there that could just, if anyone happened to come in and um, not grab one, because I'm gonna, going to follow this handout rather closely for the, the beautiful thing here is this is something I discovered a little while ago that. I just absolutely love, and I, I hope that you love it as much as I do. And so it's, it's going to give a real focus to us here when we talk about the plan. Here's a plan from St. Paul, and I'm going to use the commentary of the great common universal doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, to help us understand that plan. All right? So just to know, this, this is the book that's out of print, but many people these days are good at finding, finding things online and so forth that are out of print. And it's, and it's a commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the three Ephesians by St. Thomas Aquinas. So it, it, it can be found out there. St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And so on your handout there, I have put 
down Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, which is at the very, very end of the epistle. And then, in the rest of your handout, I have tried to encapsulate the fundamental parts of St. Thomas is trying to explain what it means. And he's going to take us through the different armament. I hope give us some very practical things as regards our plan to fight for real life. So let's just go ahead and, and read through these famous eight or nine verses here in Ephesians. Finally, brethren, so, so, he's, so he's wrapping up. Finally, brethren, be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his virtue. Put you on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the deceits of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the world of this darkness, against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. Therefore take unto you the armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and to stand in all things perfect. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplates of justice, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In all things taking the shield of faith, wherewith you may be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the most wicked one, and take unto the helmets of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. By all prayer and supplication, praying at all times in the Spirit, and in the same watching, with all instance and supplication, for all the saints. So, all I want to do today is, this evening, is take you through the basic parts of that from St. Thomas, and then we can uh, have a little discussion about it. And I hope that this, uh, this hand, handout is something that you'll be um, interested to keep with you and be able to refer back to. So, we first of all note that St. Thomas says what the context is for this ending to the letter. The context is that throughout this whole letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul has been giving instructions aimed at this fundamental Pauline theme of destroying the old man and encouraging the newness of grace. So again, it's just that fundamental Pauline theme is, is very much warfare-oriented. There's, there's a noble project before us. There's something, as it were, that has to die, and there's something that has to come to life that's going to take a project. This, again, in other words, putting on the mind of Christ. St. Thomas points out there's, there's a basic principle here, then, that, that is involved in understanding the whole situation. It is by God's power, not our own power, that we will achieve our goal, putting on this new self in grace. Given that, it's not by our, our own power that we need to do this. We can, can, can conclude three things, and that gives us the fundamental points that St. Paul is referring to then in what we just looked at. One, we ought to trust in God. 
two, we ought to put on his armor. And three, we ought to pray. The first one, St. Thomas doesn't say a whole lot. He just, he just simply says, is there any better reason to trust in someone than when you know there's someone who has all power and every motivation in the world to make something happen for you? Could you ever have more reason to trust someone than when you know he has absolutely all power and every reason to want to make your good happen? He says, clearly, this is someone we can trust. As the word St. Thomas says, enough said. So let's, let's trust him. Now let's move on. So we ought to put on his armor, and we ought to pray. But first, before we turn to the armament, and that's, that's, that's the main neat thing where St. Thomas goes through and tells us what he thinks the different things St. Paul's talking about means, he just says, let's just be clear first on a couple of things about the enemy that we're fighting, that we're putting on this armor so that we can fight. And I, and I take the, these reminders of St. Thomas as, as extremely helpful, perhaps particularly for us in this day and age. So a few points there about the enemy, you see A, B, C, and D. A, it is the devil who is the principal enemy, even when we're fighting against temptations of the flesh. There's just fundamentally sound Christian theology here. This, we're not fighting against abstractions. We're not fundamentally fighting against ourselves. No. We're fighting against people who are our enemies. That's what a war is. This isn't war in some vague metaphorical sense. We have to be very clear. There is a general, and there are the most capable followers of that general imaginable. They're the ones we're fighting. Period. And that should be in our consciousness. It isn't scare tactics. It's just the reality that we can't be forgetful of. B, kind of exercise and understatement, and St. Thomas never really uses superlatives. He just kind of says things, very, very plain language, straightforward. The enemy, his power is great. Period. Doesn't put an exclamation point, but there certainly could be an exclamation point. He notes how he, he's called the prince, he's called the ruler. He has, first of all, his own followers among the fallen angels. But then there's even many men who willingly or not so willingly for whatever reason are also following along and as it were living as he does. This magnifies his power. See, there is an immense army. The gloss, which was a, a, a traditional commentary that was put together from various sources, it wasn't just one author. St. Thomas notes, says, as regards this immense army, but this, you might find this interesting, the demons are the riders, evil men the horses. The gloss says, if we kill the riders, 
the horses will be ours. So that's spoken like, 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 like a real soldier. If we kill the riders, the demons, the horses will be ours. I, I also thought, here St. Thomas chooses to point this out, spoken like a real Dominican. He knows who the real enemies are. You're trying to kill, in some sense, them. Those horses they're riding, those misguided men, we're trying to win them back. They're not really our enemies. Though, as long as they're on that side, we're fighting them. But they're not fundamentally our enemies. Because they're called to put on the mind of Christ, too. And so we're trying to bring them back in. And we never lose sight of that. At the same time, we're very savvy and realize if right now they're fighting on that side, they're not fighting on our side. D, they are wicked. They are very wicked. And here, we think in terms of the most profound possible malice. Isn't it true that bad men, and includes perhaps at times ourselves, we're often bad more through weakness. We've been hurt by someone, and I'm not saying that excuses it, but there's pain in our life, and at times we... In general, our wickedness is not from a kind of pure, steady malice. We need to be very clear on something. We have a steady, unbending intention of our destruction. In people, they're people, persons, not human persons, but they are persons, again, whose power is inconceivable to us. It always makes me nervous when I think someone doesn't like me, much less want bad things to happen to me. It's just an important part of being realistic about the big picture, that we, again, be clear. These are not fluffy things with wings. These are things when in the Old Testament, God wanted to have X thousand Assyrians wiped out, he said, okay, to this angel, you do that. And that angel goes, and they're dead. They're gone. Boom. That was the angel that did it. It wasn't God that did it. The angel went, whoop, and they're all dead. A demon can do the exact same thing, just God doesn't normally let them. That is the type of thing that's completely in their power. The other thing that's more terrifying that's in their power is they can go and bring up anything they want to in our imagination. St. Thomas says they have direct influence on what's in our imagination. You're having a bad image? Bam. This is what was traditionally referred to, again, this isn't a metaphor, a temptation coming from the devil, from. This, this, is, this is just a part of our understanding. Why would they not do that? All right, so en- en- enough, en- enough on the enemy. You know, it's, 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 it's the kind of thing that if, if we're not, it seems to me if we're not scared, it's one of, one of two things. Either we're, we're just kind of ignorant or we have an amazing trust in God. Because if we don't have an amazing trust in God, we ought to be terrified. 
seems to me. So, going on to the armament. This is where they, they say um, St. Thomas came from a noble family where he had brothers who were knights. And so he knew armament well. And so he, he says there's three kinds of spiritual armament that St. Paul is referring to here, paralleling bodily armament. And so he divides it into three kinds. There's the first kind that are clothes. If you kind of picture the, the knight when you would kind of put on that, that under, you know, would have a hood and so forth, the things that go under before it gets on the heavy stuff. Then there's the stuff that actually is more the armor that is to protect. And then there's armament that is used for fighting. And so St. Thomas takes us through these three, and, and you'll notice as you refer back, he's following along the things that St. Paul is mentioning. So if we, if we go to um, verse 14, that's where now St. Paul starts to say, okay, now we're going to talk about taking up the armor of God. Verse 14, St. Paul says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of justice. So, here we are at what St. Thomas is calling the clothing. So what's the first thing? The belt, the fundamental covering. And this is what he's saying, St. Paul is saying when he says, gird your loins, saying that's what St. Thomas calls the belt. But it, it, I, mean, I think there's a little bit of a transit, translation issue here. I get the sense that it's kind of a broad piece kind of around the whole loins. What does St. Thomas say that is? Temperance. And then here I give you a direct quotation from St. Thomas. In spiritual warfare, it is first necessary to check carnal desires, just as the nearest enemy must be conquered first. This is done by bridling the loins in which sensuality thrives. Such girding is done through temperance, which is opposed to sensuality, and his term there means the realm of sexuality when it says sensuality, and gluttony. And so he's saying, okay, the first thing, the first thing in the battle, the first place that the enemy, kind of as it were laughing as he looks down, particularly at fallen man's weakness, the first place that he's going to check you is right there. And St. Thomas is saying, that's where the first attack comes, and if we lose there, we lose. Again, amazing insight into the culture of death and thinking of it as it's designed by someone. The evil one knows the things that St. Thomas is saying, I dare say, as well as St. Thomas does. And St. Thomas is just warning us, this is where the first attack is. We need to be very clear on that. So what does St. Paul says? Stand therefore. First thing you have to do is gird your loins in truth. You have to develop the virtue of temperance. As regards food, as regards drink, as regards the realm of sexuality. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to be a soldier at all. We, we, you know, the rest of the armament not going to do anything. He goes on. The breastplate, as we see at the ends of the 
14th verse there, the breastplate. And this one here, of course, breastplate now, that's just as St. Paul directly said that. The focus here, as in the next armament, is on overcoming greed. St. Thomas says we must refrain from any worldly gain that is unlawful. So the, the next step beyond temperance is to be absolutely just. Always in all of our affairs, rendering what is due to all around us. And it's, it's so fascinating, again, it's, it's so fascinating to me to be reading St. Thomas here on saying the armament we need to put on kind of it's, it's building up as it were. So we're starting at the bottom and working our way up. And I just and I just I just think of this culture of death. After this first area of St. Thomas saying a relative temperance, the next thing is is greed. What attacks justice? What attacks that firm steady willingness to always render to everyone what is their due. Greed. How important it is that I make it in the business world. That I thrive. Isn't it reasonable that I make my way? And so greed enters in so subtly. And here St. Thomas is saying, the breastplate of justice is our first will is to be rendering to others their due. Just a, a quick example, according to St. Thomas, almsgiving, and a number of these things are nice here preparations for Lent, almsgiving is a matter of justice. That we give to the poor for, for the Catholic tradition was never degrading. That's part of rendering what was due, the great follower. <laughs> St. John Chrysostom has the rather remarkable line, if you keep your excess wealth for, you, for yourself, you are stealing from God's poor. If you keep your excess wealth for yourself, you are stealing from God's poor. Isn't that gripping? I mean, this is this this is serious. It's it's not it, it. Yeah, not the gravy. All right, m moving along. Sandals. And here's here's this great one. Verse fifteen. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, now just so you know, I mean, if, if Saint Thomas isn't, if if Saint Paul wasn't thinking perhaps exactly what Saint Thomas is saying. We're not going to sweat that. I mean, the nice news, the, the good news is, I mean, even if it's if it's not the most perfect uh, exegesis, in any case, it's a beautiful reflection on it, right? So that here, these sandals and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I, did, I find this so so just homey. Saint Thomas says, sandals have soles underneath and are open above. 
they signify that we raise our hearts from earthly matters and pursue heavenly matters. And St. Thomas says, here, what's this? This is this renunciation of temporality. See, this is going a step beyond just justice of rendering what's due. And so, as it says there on the text, here, St. Thomas recommends the discipline of withdrawing ourselves even from material goods that are lawful. So, the, ne the next step in the battle, see, he's working us up. First of all, we had the, the temperance. Then we had justice, this firm, steady will to always be rendering to all, including God's poor, what is their due. And now he takes it further. St. Thomas is very mind, remember, what, what's this battle about? It's about turning our hearts. It's all about turning our hearts so that we want first God's will. I do his will, not mine. So what armaments are we taking up to be turning our hearts? That's the point of all the armament, to be turning our hearts to the mind of Christ. So the battle is about our affections, so we need to curb our desires. We need to curb our desires for worldly things, even those that are licit. Isn't it just a, 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 a sound battle advice to turn our hearts, surely, we need to not just be turning away from what's sinful, because the battle is not just to keep us from sinning. It's, are we going to want what God wants? Are we going to will what He wills? And so, here in this step, having our feet shod, we're thinking in terms of putting a barrier between us and those earthly things that, even if they're good, will often distract us. And thus, with the open top of our sandals, we open a space in our lives through our discipline, through our saying no even to illicit things, we open that space to turn our hearts to heavenly things. The thing I would, right there, we're saying no to the culture of death. No, even to, even to illicit things to carve out that space for looking upward. Now we turn, after those clothes we said, that, that, that's the basic covering. To be temperate, to be just, and to be exercising a renunciation of temporal things. Now he turns to the armaments that protects. And there's just two things here. Something on the heart and something on the head. Here we're really kind of the, the heart of the matter. So, in verse 16, we have, In all things, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you may be able to, to extinguish all the fiery darts of the most wicked one. Here we have some really fascinating things where we, get, we, have, we really have this sense of a direct combat with the evil one himself. He's shooting darts at you. What's, what's the shield? You have the basic covering under there that we were already talking about. Now, but now we're talking about this firm shield. How does St. Thomas explain these fiery darts there and your text there under his explanation? These fiery darts are especially evil desires which burn. 
fallen angels are working to bring these about in us. <laughs> this I find very compelling. I realize I need to stop and ask myself, how are the demons working to bring about bad desires in me? How are they working to make me want things, whatever they be, that I shouldn't? What, what a beneficial reflection for me to be aware of. I mean, surely, St. Thomas is right. We are constantly having flaming darts being thrown at us that are puncturing, as it were, our heart. That's why I'm saying it, it's the shield protects the heart. Our two, our two main defenses here, we're going to see the shield and we're going to see the helmet, the heart and the head. <laughs> These darts of the evil one through, again, I mean, many, it's not just the culture of death, but that's, that's been our theme of, of looking at what are the various ways now, especially in the culture of death, that our heart is drawn towards things it shouldn't be. Even if it's as simple as a pleasant success in the worldly sense that makes people look up to us. It doesn't have to be something that's obviously evil. But if it's something that we set our heart on that is not setting our heart on putting God's will first, is it not something that's, as it were, burning and keeping us from putting our hearts to Christ? He proceeds to say, faith extinguishes these desires. So that's how this, this shield is going to work. It quenches present and transitory temptations with the eternal and spiritual blessings promised in Holy Scripture. Isn't this in a sense at the heart of it, when we're being tempted in any way, any way at all, our hearts are being drawn towards something other than Christ? Seems to me this is where St. Thomas is saying, the shield is faith. Do I believe in what Christ has promised me? Lord, I believe that the way of life you call me to is better. If we really believe him, the shield of faith extinguishes those darts that would draw our heart. Lord, I really believe that doing your will is my happiness. Even though it looks so much right now like this would make me happy. Lord, I believe you. Nathan, as St. Thomas, it goes on and makes the rather amazing claim, and I hope Sabatino is going to love this one. Thus the Lord brought forth authoritative texts of Holy Scripture to oppose the devil's temptations, and we ought to do the same. 
Now, you know, some people say that back in the Middle Ages, the church didn't think you needed to know scripture and so forth. Well, I don't believe that. Because there's the greatest teacher in the Middle Ages saying to, to the common folk, you need to know scripture. And you know what? Remember, even people who couldn't read knew scripture. You don't have to read to know scripture. Of course, we can read. It, to be able to know Scripture, to bring forth when we're in temptation. So that's what Christ did. He was showing us how to deal with temptation. He's showing us how to have the shield of faith. We're experiencing temptation. Call up a line of Scripture. No, man doesn't live on bread alone. And St. Thomas said, call up a simple one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So just, just say it. Call up Scripture. Only the pure shall see God. Just, 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 just call it up. The power of Scripture. And faith, as it were, in those words. B, the helmet, which is on the head. And this helmet is hope. We're back at now line 17. Verse 17. Take unto you the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this, this helmet of salvation, St. Paul doesn't say hope. St. Thomas says, what's the helmet of salvation that you need to put on your head? It's the supernatural virtue of hope. Hope looks to the ultimate end of man, his transformation in Christ. St. Thomas goes on, as a helmet is put on the head, so hope is put in the end. Supernatural hope makes us firm in our attachment to spiritual goods. To the empty promises of a culture of death, we just say, no. I hope to see God face to face. No. I hope and it's a well-founded hope that I'm to live with him. I'm not going to turn my head towards other things that I'm not made for. I'm not going to forget the one thing that's necessary. I'm protecting my head here with my helmet of hope. I always keep my eyes firmly on the one thing that is worth hoping for. Nothing else is worth hoping for. It's a great line. We, we are people of hope. In a world that is so full of despair, we are people of hope. Nothing turns our head from the one thing that we hope in. Moving towards the conclusion, now he says, there's, he only gives one armament for attack. And once again, interestingly, in connection, it's closely connected to what he had said about that shield there. The sword also is the word of God. He's called that the word of God was connected with, with, with the shield and that faith. But the sword is the word of God. So again, we're back at verse 17. Taking you the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So here's St. Paul's absolutely explicit. The, the sword with which we attack is the word of God. Now, here you have a Dominican, St. Thomas, commenting on this. 
and he says the main example of using the word of God as the sword is in preaching. And the true Christian understanding of preaching has always been that it is fundamentally a preaching of God's Word, a preaching from God's Word, a preaching that leads back to God's Word. That's how we spread the kingdom. That's how, as it were, taking the war to the enemy, we're winning back those horses that the bad guys are riding on by bringing to them the Word of God. And as it were, with the sword of the Word of God, we just knock that rider right off the horse. It's, it's funny, he doesn't even particularly, and I think it's, it's beautiful how other-oriented it is. When it comes to that sword, he, he talks about how it's, you're winning others for Christ. When you're going on the attack, he's not focusing on attacking for yourself. You're attacking for the brethren that are not living the Word of God. Maybe they've never heard it. Maybe they've forgotten it. And we need to bring that sword to bring them back. I just threw in here, but further, we can apply the Word of God to our own lives to root out evil. And that's kind of, again, going back to that earlier point of using God's Word in Scripture, maybe not just to be fending off the darts, but also to be trying to root out our bad habits. So, we conclude now by, we come to verse 18. That's, that's the end of the armament. But St. Paul wraps up the armament by saying, by all prayer and supplication, praying at all times in the Spirit, and in the same watching with all instance supplication for all the saints. So I want to end today with really the same theme, if you happen to have been here last week, of our theme last week. What is the main way that we're going to be able to overcome the culture of death? What's the main way that we're going to win the battle? It's going to be through prayer. And here, just very quickly, you see these, these seven conditions, classic kind of long list of, of St. Thomas. He gives these seven conditions of prayer, and I'm just going just gonna to zip through them here for you and, and throw a couple of words um, that St. Thomas connects with each that are incredibly beautiful about them. So, prayer, first of all, has to be complete. He says, prayer is complete if we pray about everything in our life. You know, it really, it, it really struck me. Struck me. If there's something in my life that's not worth praying for, maybe it's not worth having in my life. So that's just, your prayer is complete if you're praying about everything you do. Secondly, that it's humble. He says, this happens when a man does not imagine that he's going to be heard on account of his own merits, but on account of the divine mercy. There's humble prayer. I don't deserve to be heard, but because you love me, I know you'll hear me. Thirdly, he says it's continual. I love, he, he's, I love how incredibly practical he is. He says, what we mean by continual prayer is not that you're actually praying every moment of the day, but that you pray consistently according to certain set times. And he says that makes it be continual because you have a set schedule. 
That's, he says, why the monks can be said to be praying continually, because they pray seven times a day. In between, well, they're gardening or whatever. But their prayer is continual because they're set times and they always follow them. Isn't that encouraging? And therein, he says, is continual prayer. It's devout. He says devout means it's not distracted. Vigilance, ever watching, ultimately watching with Christ, watching Christ himself. He says it's earnest. It's serious. Our heart is in our prayer life. And then finally, he says prayer is charitable. A true prayer life spends a lot of time praying for others. I conclude with the quotation I ended with last time from Father Lean. Um, so if you have your handout from last time, it's the same one that was there. And I close with this great sentence. Prayer, mortification, and silence. Prepare the soul for the action of the Blessed Eucharist. Once the obstacles are cleared away from the soul, this great sacrament of union accomplishes in its perfection that which is its special effect, namely the creation of a union of spirit between the soul and Jesus. Thank you very much for your attention. What is mental prayer that you talked about uh, last time? Could you give an example? And what is the difference between contemplative prayer and mental prayer? Um, those, are, those, those are excellent um, questions. I would, I would say I think there's not a significant difference between them. My sense is that um, contemplative prayer would be a little bit more specific than mental prayer. Mental prayer is just a little bit broader, I think would include a few more things than contemplative prayer. For instance, um, I mean, simply I mean, meditating, meditating on a, a, a particularly difficult passage in scripture is normally not what would be considered contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is more as we're gazing upon the face of Christ and you know, the Blessed Mother, looking upon the goodness of God, kind of resting in it. Whereas the medit um, mental prayer includes things that are more in the kind of, can include a mental working through. I'm trying to figure something out, I'm trying to think something through. That could still be a kind of mental prayer. But that, that's kind of a finer distinction. In general, I say contemplative prayer and mental prayer very much go hand in hand. And, and the thing that the great master, I, I very much rec I recommend this book that you can find out there uh, by Father Lean called Progress Through Mental Prayer. Is, I mean, is it basically here we just take the traditional uh, uh, prayer, uh, definition of prayer that came from the fathers of the church, raising of the minds to God. And so mental prayer is, is anything that is along the lines of I, within my own heart and mind, turn my thoughts to God, whether it's we're meditating on beautiful things in Scripture or thinking about other aspects of God that have struck me through how he's working in my life, looking at something in Scripture, meditating upon this parable, this story about the Lord's life. These, these are all mental prayer. And I think part of the reason we like to emphasize mental prayer is 
a number of us have a habit, say, of going to church and we enter into liturgical prayer, and liturgical prayer, in fact, is the highest prayer in as much as it is the prayer of the church. But it's critical to our own spiritual development that we have a habit of mental, private prayer wherein we have a unique opportunity to have contact with Christ and to be putting on his mind. And so all the spiritual masters say, though there's a kind of primacy to liturgical prayer that must never be forgotten. So we're not, this isn't going Protestant. Well, you don't need to go to church, just, just pray yourself. No, there's always a primacy of liturgical prayer, the holy sacrifice of the mass. But there's an absolute requirement. If we are going to be putting on the mind of Christ, that we are taking these things from the liturgy, that we're taking things from the Word of God, and making them our own, and discussing them literally with our Lord. It's spending time with Him, which if we love Him, we have to have those times set aside to do that. Does that make sense? Yes. Do, you want, do you want to follow up, or am I, am, was, that, was that too vague? Was that okay? <laughs> marriage. Seventeen. I was just pointing out the um, uh, the example of, of of marriage. Our relationship with God is a kind of spousal relationship. Every good marriage is based upon simply spending time with one another, where we're getting to know one another and talking to them and talking, like I'm talking to you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Talk oh, the same way to God. Indeed. But that absolutely is essential in mental prayer. It's, it's opening our heart before him. I, 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 indeed, thank you very much. I mean, that, that's extremely important because, again, it's cultivating interior relationship with him, which, to which conversation is central. Conversation is central to any relationship. Like the fiddler on the roof. When you talk to God, indeed. Now, of course, he was he was saying it out loud. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, and that's fine too. That's still that's still mental that's still mental prayer. I mean, you know, normally you're going to be in situations where you're not going to be saying it quite that loudly. But there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Because honestly, it is, it's the same spirit. Right, there we are in our room. We're looking up at the crucifix. Say, real quick, Saint, Saint Dominic. The, the, we have pictures, of, pictures, and photographs, of paintings of Saint Dominic in different positions. He loved to assume in prayer that would help him in his conversation. He, he, he loved to do this. He loved to do these. He loved to like prostrate and, and, and as an aid to speaking and sharing and spending time together, like fiddler on the roof. Yes, sir. Um, since so few homilies deal with this notion of warfare and the devil today. Yes. I would like to know to what extent what you've taught us or told us today is sort of ex cathedra, the, the central core teaching of the church, or is it somehow not essential? Because there seems to be a confusion coming from the priests, if you will, in conveying this, this message, or perhaps it's my confusion in not understanding it. Uh, that, that's that's that, that's an excellent question, and I, and I would say, um, I think that I always stand under the correction of of of, of the teaching of the church. I think it's absolutely essential 
to the Christian understanding. I mean, and, and here I mainly call the witness St. Paul. I mean, it is prominent in St. Paul. It is prominent in the letters of St. Peter. It is prominent in Holy Scripture that this is a battle. Now, we all know there's certain things in, in our Catholic faith that, that in this day and age are not emphasized as much. I mean, how, I, I'm, this isn't criticizing anyone in particular. How often do we hear purgatory preached about? Is there any question that purgatory is absolutely part of our understanding? So, I mean, we don't have to you know, lay blame in anyone's door, but I, you ask a, a, a key question, and, 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 and I would just very firmly say we can rest absolutely confident that this is central to our understanding of who we are, and we, we need, do we need any more confirmation of that than that it is right there in Scripture? And then, of course, again, fathers and doctors of the church talk about this absolutely regularly. And I think it's a good basis, actually, to think, golly, it's too bad that this isn't around so much. And period. Thank you. That's a great question. Yes, sir. How much do you think acts of charity, kindness towards other people, are part of the battle? I think very much so. And, you know, probably not highlighted enough in my presentation. I think it's interesting that here St. Thomas ending with prayer has this last characteristic be this how absolutely critical it is that we're thinking about others. And just think about other ways that here St. Thomas is bringing about also. Isn't it interesting that the sword, which is the word of God, is preaching is an act of charity. And preaching is done officially, but we also preach to those around us. And what greater thing can we do for those we love than to speak the words of God to them? And that's the sword of the word of God. And so I think, I mean, but, but I mean, other acts of charity too. There's the corporal works of mercy, there's the spiritual works of mercy. All of them are genuine acts of charity and are, are actually an excellent reminder that we actually fight this as an army. And I really appreciate your, your saying that, because again, that's something that, that, that needs to be more brought out. We're not fighting as a soldier by himself, or even just one soldier who has then a contact with our own king. We are an army, and we need to be thinking in terms of one another, as well as showing love to those others that should be in our army, though they are not now. And one of the main ways, particularly in such a broken world that is so loveless, as both of our last two popes like to point out, just by showing them love, that's a great way of starting to draw them to our, into our... So I, I, there's probably a lot more that can be said about this. That's an excellent point. Anything else? Thank you again very much.